Thank you for tuning in to the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is an online ministry striving to feed people the life-sustaining bread of God's Word. Bread of the Word exists for the reclamation of the Bible in the heart, mind, and walk of all the saints of God, for it is the Bible itself which is the ultimate standard by which people are to live and honor God. Thank you for tuning in. This is Bread of the Word. Welcome back to the Bread of the Word podcast. My name is Tyler, and I'm excited to be with you this Sunday afternoon as we continue our study in the book of Romans. And we're actually going to be finishing Romans chapter 4 today. And then we will be um, taking a break from Romans for um, Christmas and the holidays. And so I'll be putting out some content for um, the four weeks of Advent. And then we will pick back up with Romans um, the first week in January. And so, without further ado, let us dive into Romans 4. Um, we have a lot more to cover in 4, but I'm really excited. This is, we, Paul has been stating the, 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 the doctrine of um, justification by faith. And so, with these final verses, he is very much stating what does this mean. And I'm very excited for what um, we're going to dive into today. And so, let us read verses 9 through 25. Reading out of the English Standard Version, says, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. 
he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's a mouthful. And as we've done in the past installments, we will be going verse by verse and pulling out um, the deep truth as we go. So, starting with verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? So, Paul ha has been making his case for what actually happened in Genesis with Abraham. And he has made it clear that Abraham received that blessing by faith, not by his own righteousness, for Abraham had none. But he's, again, he's asking a rhetorical question. He's making um, points in the question so that his audience can think about what he's saying. Who is this blessing for? If Abraham received the blessing by faith and not because it was um, something he was deserving of, who is this blessing for? If Abraham was justified by faith prior to circumcision, then the like circumcision is not a prerequisite to entrance into the covenant of grace. Abraham is a type, meaning he is an example of the sort of faith that saves both Jews and Gentiles alike. The faith that was delivered once and all, once and for all, to all of the saints, as it says in Jude 3. Um, Jude is an interesting passage, and I found myself reading Jude as I was um, poring over Romans 4. And Jude is interesting. Jude is one chapter. It is one of the smallest books in the New Testament. And Jude is it's very rich, but it's very condensed. It's very concise. It's, he's very to the point. And in verse 3 of Jude, he writes, Beloved, Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. As you, in the context of Jude, Jude is appealing to Christians to engage in apologetics, to defend the faith, to contend for people to, um, to contend for the, the biblical worldview to state that claim, to take the gospel seriously, to bring it to the people. And he starts off with, I appeal you to contend for that faith, because this faith is not new, it is our common salvation. And it was once and for all delivered to all the saints. There is not a separate plan of salvation for the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul has made that abundantly clear in Romans. That we are saved by the same God, by the same means. But those means in the Old Testament ultimately pointed us to Christ, who was to come, has now come, and now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. He judges the earth and heaven. He reigns in heaven and he reigns on earth. And all the means of redemption are in his hands.
not anybody else's. In his commentary on the, on the book of Jude, Matthew Henry makes this observation. The apostles and evangelists all wrote to us of this common salvation. This cannot be doubted by those who carefully read their writings. The Bible is a very vast collection of writings. The Word of God spans a very long piece of history. We're talking, we're talking centuries. There are dozens of authors, 66 books. It starts in the first city. Job lived in the first city. It was called Ur, Mesopotamia. And we go from Mesopotamia to ancient Rome. And despite all of this background, despite all of the history that these authors did not all know each other, Paul didn't know Moses. Paul didn't know Habakkuk. And yet he quotes them and he brings the full meaning of what they're saying to light. That you have all of these authors and they don't contradict each other on doctrine or anything else. That could only be if God was guiding the writing. We are all saved by the same gospel that is the centerpiece of the whole of scripture. There is no other. Now that we see the blessing is available to all that come unto Christ in faith, as has been demonstrated through this book of Romans, the question remains, what is this blessing? If it's for the circumcised and the uncircumcised, if the Jew and the Gentile alike are saved by the same gospel and receive the same blessings in the same covenant, then what is the blessing? Verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The promise was an heir. The promise that was made to Abraham was that of a promised heir who would not only be the heir of Israel, but the heir of the world. Christ will have dominion over all that was made by him and for him. It says in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That's not to say that he was the first to be made or the first to be born, but he has rights as the firstborn, that that is where he sits in the family dynamic, is as the firstborn. We are his inheritance. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For him, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This inheritance was not built on the law, but rather faith. The law had not been given when Abraham was promised an heir. The law would later be given to outline our depravity and to show that God redeems. That the law was prophecy in a sense, that it pointed us to our own depravity and our need for a redeemer. They were promised a redeemer. And the law demonstrated how much they needed, said Redeemer. Habakkuk 2.4 tells us that the righteous will live 
by faith. But we are not righteous. If I was a humanist, if I and I read Habakkuk 2, 4, the righteous shall live by his faith, that would be a very encouraging statement. But humanism has no feet to stand on. Now, the fact of the matter is, when it says the righteous shall live by faith, that is both an encouragement and an indictment. Because we are not righteous. But Christ came and died for sin, that his perfect saving righteousness would make us alive. And when we come to Christ in faith, that righteousness is imputed to us. We've been talking about this thing called imputation for a while now. That Christ has transferred his righteousness to our account. Not in the sense that he lost it, but that it is counted to our account. And he looked at our debt, and he put a big stamp on it that says it's covered. That is what Habakkuk 2.4 is about. The righteous shall live by faith. And that faith that we live by is part of the gospel. That the righteousness that we have is from Christ. The soul that is puffed up is not upright within him. Meaning when we are bucked up in our own pride, we don't realize just how messed up we are. Our depravity is pretty immense. But when we realize just how sinful we are, and how much we are in need of Christ, the only logical response is to come to Christ in faith, in repentance. And Christ will transfer his righteousness. He will impute to our account his righteousness in response to faith. Faith is how we come into that covenant. And that covenant, as we talked about last week, is founded on grace. This is why it depends on faith, that the promise may rest on faith. Verse 16 says this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. Now he's demonstrating that the, the promise, that the, the promised Messiah was not solely built on the law. For if the adherents of the law, who are to be the heirs of Christ, then faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. The, the law demonstrates that we don't have it all together. The law condemns us. But where there's no law, there's no transgression. If the law hadn't been given, we wouldn't have any need for redemption. So the law had a purpose, and the law still has a purpose. But the promise, we come into the covenant not by law, but by faith. And so that promise rests on faith. Because we are justified by faith, we are saved by grace. We cling to God as an anchor in a typhoon. We have no hope outside of him. He is the only way that we can be redeemed. If it was left to us, we would all perish. We cling to him because of this, not in spite of it. We grasp at God like a helpless child. He is gracious to save all that cling to him. As St. Augustine once wrote, no one shall cross the sea of this world unless he is carried upon the cross of Christ. And those of us who are in Christ, as it says in Jude, when Jude is making his address in verse 1, 
He says, to those who are called, beloved, in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. That is three descriptions for the same group of people. We who are in Christ, who have um, come to him in faith and repentance, have been given a new, a new heart, a new, a new will, new desires, and are being conformed to the things of God, to the word of God. We are called, loved, and kept. And that is all by the same one, Jesus Christ. It is all of Christ. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Verse 17 says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. Both Jews and Gentiles alike are the heirs of the work that was begun with Abraham. Abraham was a vessel through which God initiated something. What God started in the life of Abraham found its truest fulfillment through the person and work of Christ, so that all nations are brought under the lordship of Christ. What the Jews understood was that, he, that, that this promised heir would be the heir of Israel. But Paul is making it clear that it's not just Israel, he is heir of the world. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 is one of my favorite messianic prophecies. And it's a messianic prophecy that has not been completely fulfilled yet. This is still to come. This is one of the landmark texts in what you consider, what you, what you would call post-millennialism. This idea that Christ will return victorious, not, not to rapture his church, but to um, set up his kingdom visibly on the earth, and he will rule over the nations. He will rule in the midst of his enemies. And it says in Isaiah 2, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established, in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob and he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and he shall judge among the nations, and he shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. You see, the fundamental problem with our, the nations today, the fundamental problem we're seeing with the world, is that they lack Christ. The fundamental problem here is that Christ is not at the forefront of the minds of our leaders. The reason that there is so much injustice, the reason there is so much bloodshed, so much of this, so much of that, is because the government is not the ultimate authority. The, the central worldview of our laws in this country is that Whoever sits in the White House is the ultimate authority. He is where it ends. He's the final, the final authority. But the whole concept of the Bible is that there's another king. And he supersedes all other kings. 
And our nations have gone on acting as though he didn't exist. But it says that there will come a day when all the nations will flow to the mountain. When the mountain of the Lord will be visible and all the nations will flow to it. Now it's important that it uses that word flow. Because water doesn't naturally flow up mountains. It has to be drawn up mountains. And so God is going to draw the nations into his presence, to the temple, so to speak. To the things of God, the nations will be drawn in, casting the net, and he's gathering all the fish. And the good fish and the bad fish will be separated. That he is gathering his elect from the four corners of the wind. But all the nations will come to Christ. The way of restoration for the nations is by the cross of Christ. Abraham's faith in God's promise was not um, merely about Israel. It was about all the nations because Christ is the heir of the world. Christ is king in heaven and he is the rightful king on earth. And when we spread the gospel... When we present the gospel, this is what we're doing, is bringing people under the lordship of Christ over all things. Because government is not God. Government does not have any authority aside from the authority God has given it. And the fact that they act as though he hasn't given them authority, that it's something they obtained, is prideful and incongruent with the reality of this world. God reigns. Amen. Hallelujah. And so when we evangelize, this is what we are trying to do, is to bring people under that lordship of Christ, to bring people to the obedience of faith that we read about in Romans 1. <clears throat> but the faith is not just because of our ability to follow through. Abraham was 100 years old. Abraham's faith in God's promise wasn't defined by his own ability to bring it out. His own hands could not cause God's purposes to fruition. His faith was in something external. Because ultimately, the outworking of God's promises is external. And this is why things play out the way they do. When we, What does this mean? How does this all come to fruition? You see, if... God is bringing about his own purposes. If God is sovereign over his promises, sovereign over his salvific acts of the process of redemption, if other people's salvation is not of me, that is good news. If it is not about me, then I can take my Bible and I can go to the abortion clinic. I can go to the murder mill. And I can preach the gospel. And I can be as incoherent as possible. I can stumble over my words. I can be the absolute worst communicator. And yet God can still speak through that. He can convict people of sin and call people unto himself. And people can be saved. Not because I'm that great of a communicator. Not because there's anything powerful about the way I'm doing it. But because salvation is of the Lord. And God will build his church, regardless of how, um, ex how much of an expert I am. It's not about me. There's nothing I can do to guarantee results. It is all of Christ. Because if I take my Bible and I preach the true un unadulterated gospel, 
that Christ died for sinners, was raised from the dead, and all who come to him in faith and repentance can be saved, then, then when I go there, people can be saved, Jew and Gentile alike, because this is the God I serve. This is the God who has redeemed me and is redeeming others as we speak. Verse 20 says, No unbelief made him, being Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Abraham's faith didn't waver, but he was strengthened by the faithfulness of God. Abraham spent many years waiting for the promise of a son. Initially, he was not a steward of that waiting. He tried to make things happen on his own terms, did not play out well, and caused some additional problems. But God was still faithful. Even when we are faithless, God is faithful. And Abraham's faith grew as he strove to glorify God. When we wait, we give glory to God. We don't praise God only for what we want, but we praise God for who he is despite what we want. Abraham praised God as he waited. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It was this faith, wrought through praise of the one true God, that was imputed to Abraham as righteousness. Not merely Abraham was justified in this way, but we are justified by the same faith, this living faith. There is one God, one Lord, and one common salvation, which was delivered once and for all unto the saints. This is the faith that saves us. For the glory of a righteous God. And as we close out Romans 4. This is what Paul has deliberated over for many, many verses now. That it is all of faith that anyone is saved. And that faith is in something external. That God has done what we cannot. And because of that he is worthy to be praised. As we close out this portion of Romans, I would like to read part of the book of Ephesians. I think this ties to a close what we've been talking about with faith and redemption. And in chapter 2 of Ephesians, it says, And once you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches 
of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the God who has redeemed us. This is the God who is continuing to redeem people. The God who saves by faith without works. That we can't put in any work to bring about our salvation. We can't earn salvation. But God bestows upon us grace in response to faith. Faith in something we have no control over. That it is very much is a child clinging to a big oak tree. In a, in a rainstorm that we have no ability to change anything and so we are completely and entirely helpless and we cling to the God of eternity we cry out to him in faith and with repentance of sins we cannot do away with of our own ability and he restores us he redeems us he makes us his own says that as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God. We, have, we are being reconciled to the God who made the universe in six days with words. That is immense. Take time to give God glory for that today. As Abraham did, and it will strengthen your faith. When we meditate on who God is, what he has done, and what he is doing, that, that grows us, that builds us up in our pursuit of God. Continue to be saturated with that today. And let the grace of God continue to radically transform your life. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Bread of the Word podcast. I pray that it has been beneficial to your walk with God and that he has called you into a deeper relationship and fellowship with himself. If you want to hear more from Bread of the Word, feel free to hit that subscribe button down at the bottom. Get notified about new content whenever we go live. Um, you can also watch us on Rumble Video and YouTube, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platforms. Um, you can also find us on social media if you want to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Gab. Links will be provided in the bio um, if you would like to check those out. And there will also be a message in the comment section, um, a free gospel message for download entitled The Two J's, The Joy of the Potter and the Journey of the Clay. That is something that I've written, and that is something God laid on me to write and then send out. And so I'm not making anything off of it. I'm not selling it. It is free for you to read and share. We need a further saturation of the gospel in our world, in our culture. And it starts right here. Bread of the Word Ministries exists for the reclamation of the Bible and the exaltation of Christ through the reading and teaching of his holy transformative word. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day. God bless. Matthew 4.4 4.